Welcome to 321 I Relaunch, the podcast where we discuss return to work strategies, advice, and success stories. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, CEO and co founder of I Relaunch, and your host. Today, we welcome Lizetta Rainey Braxton. Lizetta is the co CEO of 2050 Wealth Partners, a financial planning firm. She's also the founder and CEO of Lizetta and Associates, a consulting practice that helps financial services firms create culturally aware and hospitable workplace environments. Today, we're focusing on financial decision-making when returning to work after a career break. Relaunching can impact the way Social Security benefits are calculated. Tax brackets may change. If a spouse or partner is involved, budgeting conversation can change significantly when a non-working partner is working again. So that's a conversation in itself. I know I, I, I have my own personal experience with that. And I cannot wait to get Lizetta's advice on all of this. Lizetta, welcome to 321 I Relaunch. Thank you for your warm hospitality, Carol. It's wonderful to be reconnected with you in this way. Yes, and, and I should mention that Lizetta and I go way back as uh, colleagues in, in a range of different contexts, and uh, we've known each other for a long time. So this is a special pleasure. Um, maybe, Lizetta, can we start by uh, getting a little background from you about your uh, career path leading to what you're doing today? I'll keep this very brief. And to say that financial planning was not an option when I got my degree in finance, my undergraduate degree in finance, and my MBA in finance. So I have always wanted to explore personal finance due to my background with my parents being high school sweethearts, struggling with their finances. I wanted something different for them. I wanted something different for my life and generations to come as well, too. So I took a route of accounting. Accounting has been around for, you know, millennia, <laughs> I'm sure. Um, that was my love. I did finance, you know, as well. Well, accounting is second love. Finance major love, but it was easier to kind of focus on accounting jobs, for which I did as an internal auditor for Marriott. That was my first job, not finance. Uh, certainly wonderful for understanding business. Then I did corporate accounting. Then I finally went into investment management and wealth management. Through my experience with wealth management, I discovered a certified financial planner, Melissa Hanimal. And I'm like, she's who I want to be. She took me under her wing and I got my CFP credentials and launched my first firm, Financial Fountains, back in 2008. And now have merged my firm um, with uh, Rianca Dorsonville. And we are now 2050 Wealth Partners. Mm. Very good. And just for our audience, can you explain briefly the CFP credential? Yes. So one thing we know for sure is that there are many designations and licenses for which people can identify as a financial advisor. What is special to the certified financial planner designation is that we have, you know, requirements for the exam, for the experience, you know, for ethics um, as well, too. And so I am one of over 90,000. And 90,000 doesn't seem like a lot when you have millions of people living in the U.S. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. as well. And so I appreciate our fiduciary responsibility as a CFP professional. And what that means is that we are required to keep our clients' best interests first. Mm. 
And what does CFP stand for? Because there are going to be people in the audience who don't know. Certified Financial Planner. Great. Thank you. And actually, that is a good segue into the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, um, can you break down um, the wealth advisory or financial advisory uh, profession for us a little bit and and maybe uh, describe the difference between fee-based financial advising and commission-based and why uh, fee-based is often recommended? And I'm going to add another term to your question as well, too. So what we're talking about is how advisors are compensated, how they're paid, and also the delivery of service. So let's first talk about the business model. Commissions was the one that a lot of people were familiar with. What does that mean is that you would be sold products, maybe insurance and or um, other investments that the advisor would receive commission from. Mm. Mm -hmm. The client would not see that money (laughs) being transferred. They would only see their investment or the product. So the Mm -hmm. question was, if an advisor is incentivized to sell because they're getting paid by what they sell, is what they're selling really in the best interest of clients? So here is the second aspect of this. What we know is that, and we know meaning advisors, not necessarily clients, is that commission base is a suitability viewpoint, meaning that the products could be suitable, but maybe Mm. not in their best interest. Got it. So this conflict of interest of selling for the benefit of the advisor may not be for the benefit and best interest of the client, although it could be suitable And that's what we hope, but oftentimes we didn't see that being such the case. The next level is fee-based, which is changing in terms of its definition, but I'm going to do the traditional definition. Fee-based may have a component of commission as well as fees that are obtained directly from the client. So are the fees coming from the product or the fees coming from the client or a combination of the two? So now let's talk about how fees can be obtained from the client directly. Fee-based usually for most people means that they're getting the fees from the assets under management, right? So that means the client owns the asset, the advisor is taking money from the assets to pay him or herself or themselves. Okay. I'm using pronouns. I want to be inclusive. This advisor may also, and it's, in its approach to servicing the client as a financial planner may also offer insurance, which has a commission base. I mean, insurance is just commission-based and insurance is necessary. So we're not saying it's not necessary. It's to complement the financial planning experience. Now, I'm introducing the third option, which is the, is the option that I selected. My business partner and our firm is fee only, meaning... Mm-hmm. All of the engagement is paid from the client directly and with transparency. So our model, we've decided to be a combination of retainer plus assets under management, also known as AUM. What does that mean for us? A lot of people don't have a million dollars as a starting point for investable assets. And so with retainer, that allows people to pay out of income to help build their wealth. And we're very advice driven. We add the AUM later 
you know, so mm-hmm. our retainer includes 400,000 in investable assets under management. As your assets grow, we do add a component of AUM and that's because of the complexity that usually grows as you attract more wealth. So we are proud for us um, to be fee-only virtual financial planners for which this allows access to financial planning, particularly for an industry that has valued AUM currently and has, you know, starting to transition away from commission. All right. So just to make sure that we're clear, um, when you say fee-based before someone, it kicks in that they have enough wealth that they're actually paying you, I don't know if it's a percentage of assets under management. Is it a flat fee and do they pay it once a year? They pay it monthly or what? What is it? The models can can change about when you pay. I will give you the norm, and I'll put this in air quotes, is 1%. 1% of your assets under management. So if you have a million dollars, that's $10,000 a year, which typically is billed quarterly. Regulations really don't allow you to bill in advance of services more than six months. I wear compliance hat as well, too. So the expectation is that you will be paying quarterly this fee. It'll be calculated quarterly based on the assets under management at that particular valuation date. And this is the the piece. Clients should be able to see what the fee is and be invoiced. And sometimes a lot of the firms are not as rigorous Mm -hmm. (laughs) with their reporting and transparency. Okay. And so let's say I have half that amount or less. Is there a certain minimum that it doesn't make sense to have a financial planner if you have um, or a financial advisor if if you have um, less than a certain amount of assets under management, like maybe at at any point? There's a financial planner for everyone. And what do I mean by that? There are some advice only financial planners that will charge by the hour. And what Mm -hmm. I realize is that a lot of people, particularly middle income people who may not who may believe that financial planning is not for the rest of us, for which I strongly believe, will spend five thousand dollars on vacation (laughs) trips and travel. So if people are really serious about where their money is going, I'm saying if you work with a financial planner, you can have that plus more. And it's proven. I know that to be certain. So I do not believe. To answer your question, that financial having a financial planner is only for certain people. I think it's for everyone. I think there are models out there. Uh, I said the fee only, which a subset of that is advice only, where there's no investment management, only guidance and direction, which you can use retail accounts for in terms of implementation with the investment side of things. What I also want to introduce as well is that there are financial coaches who cannot advise on investments, because that is the the key area for which requires regulation. They can advise on money habits, savings, budgeting, debt, bringing you aware of some of the other asset protection strategies with insurance, estate planning, and the like. My point being is financial planning includes coaching if it's done well. There are entry points on an hourly basis to get you started. And there are financial coaches. If you want to kind of ease into financial planning, then their fees are typically lower and it gets you a good foundation as well. Mm -hmm. And um, if you're 
new to this and you're seeking out a financial planner or someone who is in this field, how do you know whether they operate on a commission-based model or whether it's a fee-based model? Are they required to put something in their description or do you have to ask certain questions or how do, how do you figure that out? I, I would be prepared regardless to ask the question of mm -hmm. what is your model? And we've said that clearly language, commission, fee-based, which is a combination of money from the client, money from product, and fee-only, which means money solely from the client. And with fee-only, are you advice-only and or are you comprehensive in terms of implementing investments? That's All clear right, so that's that question. Mm -hmm. All right. I, so everyone's listening to what the language that Lizetta is using and that vocabulary in terms of uh, what question to ask when you're essentially interviewing financial planners or financial advisors about uh, and trying to select one. OK, I want to now sort of move into the issues around that relaunchers face when uh, when we're resuming careers after an extended leave. And I've heard that there are social security uh, payment implications from having a career break and then resuming. And, and sometimes people do that more than once. Is, is there anything, um, any guidelines or any um, explanation that you can give to us to demystify that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, so these are the steps that I think everyone should take. First of all, claim your profile. Go to ssa.gov. So Sam, Sam, Apple, or Social Security Administration.gov. Secure your online profile so nobody else does it. We know what we're dealing with with, you know, online and we want to make sure you have your account. Next, when you're in there, know that you'll be able to see your social security statement. So that social security statement for Gen Xers and baby boomers was something that we were accustomed to getting in the mail. Now everything is online. When you get your social security statement, you will be able to see all your earnings that were taxed for social security during your working years. And you'll see the zero for years that you did not work. What is mm -hmm. important to know is that when it comes to your benefit calculation, uh, that is based on your years that you've worked. Now, let me take a step back. We also want to talk about eligibility for Social Security before we talk about the calculation. For eligibility, okay. you need to have worked 10 years of work which is the equivalent of 40 credits to qualify for the benefits. The 10 years of work does not have to be consecutive. It is okay. over your career journey before you are eligible to claim for that social security benefit. Okay, so it's the aggregate of 10 years. It could be before your career break and then after your career break, as long as it adds up yes. in total to end. Okay. Yes, and this 40 credits, you will have to depend on the Social Security Administration to determine if you have those credits, which will show in your profile. So as long as you have 10 years, you know, solid years, it should be straightforward. And I'm also saying to you, there's no calculator <laughs> to determine the credits. Just look in your profile to see where you are on your credits. Okay. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's yeah, and then ahead. we were also talking about the primary insurance amount. So that 
calculation. Once again, it's a social security calculation. You'll see the definition in SSA.gov. There's different tiers about how the benefit is calculated based on certain percentages. Complicated. Yes. The key is knowing PIA in terms of concept, that calculation, knowing your eligibility, you've worked 10 years or have 40 credits. And then your PIA is going to be calculated for you. And then you can see how much you can expect to get each time you log into your account year by year, because the more data you have, the more it's going to be factored into the calculation of your estimated benefit. Okay, let me just dissect this for a minute. So you're saying the social security benefit is some amount that you get paid um, after you call, you know, whatever age you call, if I can talk about that, and that you just get a payment. But then the PIA is, is that's the insurance part? Does that have to do, or, or? No, it's how your benefit is calculated. So think about PIA as the formula for which your benefit is determined. So that calculation, benefit calculation, they call it PIA. The Social Security, in essence, is kind of an insurance concept, but not in its traditional insurance terminology. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Wow. All right. I I have to go to SSA.gov myself now <laughs> and do this. I'm I'm glad that I'm glad we had this conversation now. Uh, not only for the whole audience, but also for me. Um, okay, and then let's, can can you give us a little insight about age? So let's say, you know, I worked for a number of years, I took a 10-year career break, I went back to work, I'm back in the workforce for a while, then I start to get close to retirement age, and I decide I'm going to retire, and then when I'm retiring, I'm like, you know, this isn't, I don't want to be retired anymore, and I go back to work. Is there anything significant about the age at which the retirement or unretirement happens um, and your Social Security benefit? Okay. The answer to that, <laughs> it depends. <laughs> so let me first define for everyone the different ages for claiming Social Security benefit. Okay. All right. Great. Their early retirement is age 62. The full retirement is based on the year you were born. So I'm going to say for those who were born 1960 or later, the full retirement age is 67. Mm, those okay. who were born in 1954 are younger. Really, if you haven't claimed in, in the window, your full retirement age, and I'm going to say was 66. Okay. Because those who are 1954 are already age 66. And then there are some tiers and months in between. So if you were born 1955 to 1959, your full retirement age is 66 and some months. Okay. So for most, well, I won't say for most of the listeners, I would just say, in essence, think about 66 to 67 being your full retirement age. Okay. At age 70 is when you do not receive any greater benefit for delaying your social security benefit. Okay. Is there a penalty or it's just no additional benefit? It's just no additional okay. benefit. No penalty is like, <laughs> your benefit is what your benefit is. <laughs> it okay. will be there, there, you know, thereafter. And so, and then each year, once you claim your benefit, right? The question is, will there be a cost of living adjustment, which is declared every year? Now, your question is, if someone has claimed their benefit, 
and then return, how does that impact their benefit? What I do want to say before addressing that question is be mindful of when you're ready to take the benefits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> First of all, before we go back to right. relaunching your career. Okay. Because some people, as they're, it depends on the break that you need. And when you need the break, could be caregiving, could be life, a lot of different reasons, right? Is that we say, if possible, don't take it at 62 because you're chopping off a lot of your benefit that's locking in for the rest of your life, assuming that you don't return back to work, right? Okay. So if you can delay delay it, if you can, to your full retirement age, normal retirement age. Let me, let me make sure I understand this. You're saying um, if you... If you uh, take it, starting at 62 versus like 66 or 67, you have those extra four, five years there to have the benefit increase a little no, bit you more. you don't have no. the benefit. That's why I was like, if you take it at 62, you're locking in at a substantially reduced benefit. Okay. I see. Okay, okay. Because it's not the full benefit. It's not Got the it. full benefit. And you cannot right. Okay. Right, say, okay, now in this age, I want to change. No, I, you've locked in. You've made that decision at 62. All right. So that's an important decision. When you decide to start claiming your social security benefits, you're allowed to do it at 62, but if there's any way possible, it's better to prolong it as, as long as you can until you get to 66 or 67, depending on how old you are. Right. And when, if you, if you can even delay from 66 or 67 to 70, then oh, what you're doing okay. is increasing that amount that you will eventually lock in. Okay. Wow. All right. I'm glad I'm talking to an expert because this is complicated. <laughs> and then the, <laughs> let's add another tier to that medical insurance. Mm-hmm. Right. So when you're talking about um, exiting the workforce, we're all saying, how will my benefits be covered? Will it be a, spar- a spouse or a partner? Do I have to go through the exchange, right? Because you need to be insured. So as you're in this age of thinking about insurance, we know at age 65 is when you're eligible for Medicare. Okay. Part B, mm-hmm. right? So for those who are maybe not returning to the workforce, as we're thinking about social security income, then 65 is the age for Medicare. You cannot get Medicare sooner. So you may start with your benefit for Social Security so you have some income coming in um, and you will have to wait to your age 65 to have the benefit of Medicare as insurance coverage. Okay. All right. I guess I'm going to leave the Medicare discussion there because I'm sure we could have a completely separate conversation on that piece of it. But I want to um, ask you the question about you know, for people who are a little earlier stage, who are maybe earlier in their career, they're anticipating they're, they may be taking a career break later. Um, is there um, anything that you would recommend that they think about in order to plan for that career break um, from a financial planning perspective? So we see human capital as an asset. So when I have discussions with clients about what they want to do, that's important to know what income you can make that will be sustainable to Mm. support how you want to live financial planning wise, right? And building your assets. 
So a core of the discussion that helps us move along on this journey is really anchored in the human capital, mm. really anchored in what it is you want to do and then what should you be paid for it. So once you know what you want to do, you catch up on what the market is saying about what you want to do and what the market is paying. So then we go to salary.com or something so that you go in to negotiate your salary because you are your biggest asset. What you bring in is going to determine what you can put to work to support how you want to live now and in the future. Um, Lizetta, let me just take a giant step back, though. I'm thinking about if I am early in my career, I'm still working, and I think I'm going to take a future career break. Is there any sort of special planning I need to do? Like, do I have to save up a certain percent, a certain amount of money per year that I'm going to be on career break? Is there a formula or something that I should be thinking about in terms of savings planning for taking a career break? Or is that too hard to talk about because everyone's situation is so different? We do have strategies for those who want to take a career break. Ideally, when you hear people say emergency funds, or we like to say a cushion account, we like to use the word cushion so you can help sleep at night, <laughs> mm-hmm. is to have that six months of living expenses. So then the question is, your living expenses as they are before you take the break, are they as low as they possibly can be for you to be comfortable? Okay. Because the idea is the lower the expenses, the more flexibility you have and the more assurance you have when the money that you saved (laughs) is depleted and gives you some room to think about when you have to return. And I said have to return because you don't have the resources to support being out of the workforce. Got it. All right. Well, so that's, that's a a good, good context. And uh, for the next question is if you decide to go back, but you're not going to jump right back into a full-time job as an employee for a company, let's say, and you want to do something uh, consulting or something where you're more, of your your own you're self-employed and you're a contractor then can you explain um the tax difference between being a contractor and working for yourself and um being an employee and working for a, a company there are two tax forms that help you know <laughs> where you fall in terms of your earned income w2 and 1099. So that's how I'm going to respond to your question. W-2 meaning you're working for someone else Mm -hmm. and then 1099, you're working for yourself. Got it. Now, your question was about the 1099 aspect and that's easier for me to talk about because a lot of people have experience with the W-2 and not the 1099. Right. The biggest difference, two things. One, the um, Social Security taxes that is paid and to the benefits you receive. Let's talk about the Social Security tax. We know it as FICA tax. It's an acronym. Just stick with the acronym because even if you knew the federal term, it wouldn't matter to you. (laughs) What that means is 15.2% goes to the bucket of Social Security. Hold on a second. One five or five oh? 15.2%. 15.2%. Okay. And there are two components that fund Medicaid and disability and social, and social security. 
the W-2 side, that 15.2% is split in half, meaning the employer pays one half, the employee pays another half. And then when it gets to a certain limit, then the employee no longer contributes that amount. It's only half of 2.9%. This sounds complicated, but just know, keep 15.2% in your mind and that's split on the W-2 side. On the 1099 side, you're paying for the 15.2 contribution into this bucket. I see. The other aspect of this in terms of, in terms of taxes, I'm talking about the 15.2% Medicare, Medicare. You also have the income tax, which regardless you have to pay, the benefit on the W-2 side is that that is being calculated for you and remitted to the IRS on your behalf mm-hmm. as a part of your paycheck. Mm-hmm. When it comes on a 1099, you have to do estimated tax payments. So you mm-hmm. have to estimate what you should remit and responsible for remitting it yourself on okay. a quarterly basis. Okay, very helpful. So that's the tax side. And then the benefit side is the question is, how are you going to have the benefits that an employer may or may not provide? Retirement, medical, life insurance, et cetera, disability. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Thank you. Um, so we're wrapping up right now. And there are a couple of questions I, I wanted to ask before we um before we finish our conversation. And one of them is about when someone, if you're in a relationship with a spouse or partner, you've been on career break, and then you go back to work, all of a sudden you're bringing in income, whereas before you weren't. And I remember in my own case, I was on career break for 11 years, and the longer I was not bringing in income, the more, the less I felt I had a, a right to contribute to certain financial decisions. I know this was my own thing in my own head, but if I'm being honest, that's how I felt. And then when I started making money again, I felt much more empowered to have a voice in those conversations. So I wanted to know if you have any recommendations for spouses or partners when um, there are changes in income in terms of who's earning it and when. Yes, and I, I too was in that situation when um, you know I took a break to help support raise um, our daughter and shared in the same sentiment as well too. There is, in terms of the human nature and how this world operates, that money does talk. <laughs> and if you're not making any, um, you feel like your voice is muted. And that's what you're saying. And that that is a human tendency. So then I go back to conversations with couples is to have the space for each couple, each person to say how they feel about being the primary breadwinner. That's a lot of responsibility mm-hmm. as well. Right. Mm-hmm. And also there is some assumptions that is made sometimes by the breadwinner or how taxing it is for the one who's not bringing in money, how that feels. So communication is key to give space for the raw emotions (laughs) that come along with it. And then you move to what it looks like in balancing the contributions to the family, knowing that those who are not contributing money are contributing work contributing their human capital into making the household work that has an economic value to it, mm-hmm. but no transfer of money that is happening. Mm. Interesting way to think about it. Yes. And that's uh, where the balance is. Yeah. All right. Well, that's a, that's a really good perspective um, for 
those of us who are in a situation uh, where we are not the breadwinner and then we become an income producer and how that dynamic changes um, the conversation between partners. Um, Lizetta, I'm going to now ask you the question that we ask all of our podcast guests, and that is, what is your best piece of advice for our relauncher audience, even if it's something that we've already talked about today? Is to commend yourself on hanging in there in the different seasons of life, always protect and know your worth and your value for, for, for being and knowing what you are capable of doing under any circumstances presented to you when you return or if you decide to return, get the income you deserve. And then also because you are able to, to live off less, uh, don't let lifestyle creep up on you when the money comes back flowing again to keep the wisdom that you had during those tough times and also rewarding yourself in a reasonable way and be sure to pay attention to your financial records, including going to SSA.gov. Mm, excellent. Very comprehensive and great advice. Lizetta, how can people find out more about your work? Yeah, so my financial planning firm I mentioned is 2050 Wealth Partners, and that is plural with an S.com, our 100% virtual fee-only financial planning firm. And I also do DEIB work, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging work. And I do see relaunchers as a part of that community um, of those who are coming back and not being discriminated based on gaps. Um, in their work history and being honored for what they bring to the to the table and being paid <laughs> what they deserve as well too. So um, that is Lizetta.com, that website. Excellent. Yes, we didn't even get a chance to talk about that part of your work, but we will definitely um, include those links in the podcast notes. And I'm glad you also talked to our audience about it. Lizetta, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure and I commend you for the tireless work you have done to, to bring voice and joy to Ivory Launchers. Thank you so much. And thanks for listening to 321 iRelaunch, the podcast where we discuss return to work strategies, advice, and success stories. I'm Carol Fishman Cohen, the CEO and co-founder of iRelaunch and your host. For more information on iRelaunch conferences and events, to sign up for our job board and access our return to work tools and resources, go to iRelaunch.com. And if you like this podcast, be sure to rate it on Apple Podcasts and your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to share this podcast with a friend on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media. Thanks for joining us. 